Good morning, everybody. We continue our teaching series through the book of John. Uh, if you've got the study journal, great. It's called The Way of the Cross. Yeah, through Mark. John's good too, but Mark is better. And uh, the study journal is called The Way of the Cross. We would recommend that you pick it up if you don't already have a copy. But um, the first part of Mark that we went through before Christmas, it was all kind of like happy news. Everybody's happy to see Jesus. Everybody's getting healed and the good news is here. And now as he starts to head towards the cross, things get tougher. And that's kind of what happens in your spiritual life sometimes. When you first come to Jesus, it's all good news. And then the rubber meets the road and hard things come in. You go, man, can I really do this? Yeah, you can do it. But sometimes it's going to look a little bit different than what you thought it would look like. Um, And so as Jesus begins traveling towards Jerusalem to head towards the cross, he gets hit with some challenging situations. He gets hit with some things where people aren't super open to him or super friendly to him. People start to wander from him, and they hit him with challenging, tough questions. So there's a lot in this passage this morning, and for this reason, uh, Jen's going to read the first part, then we'll unpack together, then she'll come read the second part, and we'll unpack, and the third part, and we'll unpack. And um, let me say, too, that there's a resource that we put out every week, uh, and we publish it online. And it's a sermon outline and then followed by some sort of uh, questions that you can reflect on individually or together in your groups. If you just go to our webpage, it's like the second thing down that you'll see called Sermon Outline. You can click on it. You can follow along during during the message or print it when you get home. And it's a way of kind of refreshing yourself. Oh, what all did he talk about? And then the questions are there at the end. Um, So in the name of seeing it clearly, I'm going to go backstage and grab my glasses, which I forgot. And Jen's going to introduce the passage for you this morning, uh, starting in Mark, not John, Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. (laughs) Oh, friends, you can open it up if you have it. Mark chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Okay, everybody take a deep breath. We need to talk about what we do with passages in the Bible that we come across that are uncomfortable. They might be uncomfortable for us because they're just personally very convicting. They might be uncomfortable because as we think about our unchurched friends and neighbors, we don't want them to open the Bible for the first time 
to Mark chapter 10, and that's the first thing they read about Jesus. There's the judgy Jesus nailing them to the wall, and now I have to answer for that. They may be uncomfortable because they point to a, a, something in your past, something in your upbringing or your past life that just doesn't feel good. And so what do we do as believers when we come across these passages that are really tough and really difficult? I've been thinking about that this week. Because I think that if you believe, as we do, that the church exists to be a church without walls, out there, salt and light, then we can't just brush passages like this under the rug and say, well, it's inconvenient. We're just not going to talk about it. We've got to be able to interface with culture and respond to culture. And so ignoring it is just not really an option. Um, so I want to talk about four ways that believers might respond to passages that we come across in the Bible that just don't make us feel good. And this is one of those passages. So number one, one response might be to just ignore it or minimize it and say, eh, I want to just focus on the loving Jesus. I want to just focus on the Jesus who hugs me. I don't think that's a good option for reasons that I'll explain in just a second. Another option is to contradict it. Sometimes people will do that. They'll look at a Bible passage and they'll go, yeah, it says those words, but it actually means the opposite. And that's uh, tricky. Another option is sometimes people will say, well, that was then, but this is a couple thousand years later. This is now. And that was the culture then, but this is the culture now. That does sometimes work in limited circumstances, but it's not always the answer. It's not always the answer. Here's why I think ignoring or rejecting these hard passages doesn't work. I'm going to put something up on screen, and this illustration will work for those of us of a certain age and above, and for others not, but it used to be that when newspapers would print pictures, they would use these halftones, these little dots. If you looked really, really close, all you would see is the dots, but it didn't make any sense until you zoomed out, and then you would see this. It's actually a person, okay? And that comes from his neckline. So go back one slide. You're seeing this. What is it? But when you go out to the whole picture and you see it there, you've got some definition. Now, it's not perfect, but you can see enough to see what it is. The written record of Jesus' life and teaching, called the Gospels, each part is important because it's a little dot in the picture. And if we wish too many of those things away, because we go, ah, cut that part out, oh, I don't like that, that makes me feel uncomfortable, pretty soon we don't have a good picture of who he is. Every part fills in a little piece of the picture. No one part tells the whole story. There's no one verse in the Gospels that perfectly sums up all of who Jesus was and is. John 3.16 probably comes the closest, but it doesn't tell everything. And, and we know from the end of the Gospel of John, uh, 21 verse 25, Jesus did so many things and said so many things. If they were all written down, John says, I don't think all the libraries in the world could hold all those books. So the picture we have of Jesus from the Gospels is full, but it is not complete. And one of the promises of heaven is you're going to get to heaven, then you're going to have the 4K ultra-high definition picture of him. All your questions will be answered. Nothing will be left to suspicion at that point. But right now, we have what we have. So it's not a good option, in my mind, to just wish away some of these things because it, it kind of muddies the picture of who Jesus is. Instead, 
I think when we come across these hard or uncomfortable passages, number one, let it say what it says. Just say, yeah, that's what it says. And then use discernment to try to understand things like, why did Mark consider it important to include this? Of all the things he could have included, or it was actually Peter dictating to Mark, why did Peter choose to include this? Is there some timeless principle here that carries over to today? Or is it just situation specific? He said it, but it doesn't carry forward. Is it just culturally specific? And that is what I call grappling. I think that we need to grapple with passages like this because if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then to take it beyond what's intended actually disrespects God. We have to be careful with God's words that He gave to us. If we make it something bigger than what it is or if we make it something less than what it is, we're not respecting who He is. So here's these four approaches again, and and I want to know where you think you would fit in when you come across an uncomfortable Bible passage. Do you tend to ignore or minimize it? Do you contradict it? Say it actually says that, but it means the opposite. Uh, Do you tend to say most of those things are cultural? That was then, this is now. Or do you grapple with its meaning? So let's grapple together, okay? Let's grapple with Mark 10, 1 through 12. And what's going on here? So opposition from the Pharisees is a theme throughout all the Gospels. The Pharisees are always trying to nail him down to the wall and hopefully catch him in some sort of contradiction or some sort of blasphemy. And in first century Judaism, there were different schools of thought over when a divorce was permissible, with some people saying adultery only, only in cases of adultery can a man divorce his wife, all the way down the spectrum to any and every reason, and then points in between. So the Pharisees are saying, whose side are you on? How do we nail you down here? And what Jesus is doing in this passage is he is recasting our understanding of human relationships. He's saying, let's not think of this in terms of what you can get away with, Let's think of this in terms of intention and purpose and design from the beginning. And he brings them all the way back to the beginning in Genesis when people were created. And he says, God created them male and female. And this is the reason a a man will leave his mother and father, be joined to this woman, they become one flesh. And he says, this is what marriage works so so that his point is, you are not the Lord of your marriage. God's the Lord of your marriage. Marriage is on a different plane than any other relationship. You think about it, most relationships you have are either transactional or they're temporary. Transactional means I'm interacting with you because we're working together on something or I need something from you, but, but once that's concluded, I move on from it. Or they're temporary, like, like maybe you had a best friend growing up, but now they live across the country and you still kind of keep in touch, but you're not as close as you once were. That's most relationships transactional or temporary. But marriage is weird. Marriage is unique in that here I am taking this person who is not my family. I owe this person nothing. And I am bringing them into my family and we are becoming one family and we are acting and behaving as though we are one. What a weird thing. There's no other relationship that fits really into that class of things. 
And so, so God is saying, or Jesus is saying, hey, this is a special arrangement here. And, and unlike in first century Judaism, where again, the prerogative was on the man, the husband, to decide. So the, 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 the wing over here that said divorce for any and every reason, that was a man's decision. He could just decide, I'm done. I want to marry someone else. And you know that was very bad for the woman because women in those days, likely not educated, didn't work. How's she going to provide for herself? Right? So Jesus takes it out of that and says, no, no, guys, dudes, you're not the Lord of your marriage relationship. God is the Lord of your marriage relationship. And so because God takes marriage seriously, we should take it seriously. In our house, we, uh, we just put these, um, these vinyl planks you know, down all over the main floor. We took the carpet out of the living room, and so now it's hard floors down there. And so I was, um, had this little talk with my kids. My kids are both four and a half. And somehow the lamps that we have have survived. I don't know how, but they've survived. There's a couple times that like pillows have knocked them over, but they land on the carpet and they don't break. But now, hmm, I said to the kids the other day, I said, now, now you guys, now that we have hard floors, you have to be very careful with the lamps because if the lamps fall on the floor, they will break. After about a minute, my son comes to me and he says, Dad, if I knock over the lamp and break it, but it's an accident, will you still forgive me? <laughs> I said, yes, Grayson, I will forgive you. He said, yeah, because it doesn't matter. We can always get a new one at Home Depot. <laughs> I had to think about that for a couple minutes. So I come back with this, and, and, and I'm thinking, how do I teach him that even though, yeah, like I'll forgive him, I don't want him to just be careless with the lamp, right? So I come back with this. I say, I said, you know, son, look at this lamp. I said, this lamp is special, the way that it's made. There is no other lamp... <laughs> just like this lamp. And I said, if it falls and breaks, we don't have this lamp anymore. He says, well, we could always put it back together with super glue. I said, yeah, but, but then it's still not the same as it is right now. And this is where the illustration falls apart because he says, well, but if it breaks inside, we'd have to break it anyhow to get inside to fix it. And so that's, that's where the dad explanation fell apart. But the point is, we treat it specially. We, we treat it special, right? right? It's, it's, like, it's like a unique thing. And, and no one goes into marriage wanting to get divorced. No one goes into marriage expecting to get divorced. And so, so if you're here this morning and divorce is part of your story, like, we don't want you to feel condemned. And we don't want you to feel like, like Jesus is picking on you because he knows that you know that your marriage was special. All broken relationships of any kind break God's heart. Why? Because God is a purposeful God. Everything he created was created on purpose and with a purpose. And that includes relationships, but not just marriage relationships, parent-child relationships, friend relationships, even those transactional relationships that I talked about, Everything God created is created on purpose. And because it's created on purpose, the creator has the prerogative to define the intention behind it. You see? 
if Steve Jobs saw me pounding nails with my iPhone, he would go, that's not what that's for. And he'd be right. And I'd say, oh, no, but it, but it works. But he goes, no, that's, that's not what I created that thing for. And that's what God says when he looks at our relationships of any kind, that broken relationships break God's heart. That includes its estrangement in families. God doesn't want that. That's not the intention. It includes broken friendships. It includes divisions between people and strife and violence. That's why we commemorate Sanctity of Life weekend, and not just on the weekend, but year-round, because we believe people were created in God's image. And so as fellow people, we need to be careful how we treat them. I don't know if you heard, but there was a shooting uh, up in L.A. last night at a Chinese New Year celebration. Did you hear this? And 10 people were killed, and 10 people are in the hospital. And I don't even need to say it. That grieves God's heart to see people interacting in that way towards each other. So all broken relationships, not just divorce, all broken relationships break God's heart. And so before we move on, I want to make another observation about this passage because I think it's important and it's, it's not just specific to people who've been divorced or even just people who are married, but to all of us because it speaks to the difference between having the truth and properly handling the truth, okay? And I want to I state this. Teaching about divorce was not central to Jesus' mission as an itinerant preacher, in other words, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, meaning he traveled from place to place to place. And as he traveled from place to place, he repeats kind of the same themes again and again and again. If we saw his teaching about divorce pop up 14, 15 times, we would go, oh, okay. Jesus' mission was to come and really like nail people who are divorced. But that's not true. What's happening here is Jesus is answering a question. He's answering a question. And so as he travels around, he's preaching the good news. Jesus is saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the central message of Jesus. That's the flag that he is waving at the front of his parade. And I think there's a pattern there for us as believers. What's the flag that you are flying at the front of your Christian parade? When people see you coming and they know that you're a person of faith or, or you're going to open your mouth and talk about Christianity, is that good news for them or is that dreadful news for them? See, it's not wrong to possess the truth. There is a truth that Jesus is relaying about marriage relationships here. And there's, there's all sorts of truth that's God-ordained out there and it's wonderful and it's absolute truth and you can have that truth and as believers we should search the scriptures and and seek wise counsel and we should have the truth but what's the flag that you're flying at the front of your Christian parade because if it's not the same flag that Jesus was flying you're misrepresenting the gospel Jesus' flag was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and implicit in that is the idea that the kingdom of heaven is real even though you can't see it, that it's something we should, we should enter, that it's something we should value and that inside of it you find a perfect expression of God's will for all things and that you should want that. Is there a truth about marriage relationships that God's behind? Yeah, 
Is there a truth about sexuality that God is behind? Yeah. Is it the flag that Jesus flew at the front of his parade as he traveled around? No. So, so we can know those things as believers, but we need to first represent a gospel of repentance and restoration and renewal and regeneration because that's the message that Jesus championed. Jesus' primary mission, you see, was to point us towards a better way to live, a God-soaked, God-infused life that's full of joy and reconciliation to the Father. He tells them, Moses gave you this law because your hearts were hard, you guys. But what if our hearts could be soft? What if our hearts could be changed? What would be the model for that? And that leads us to the next section here in John chapter 10, Jesus and the children. Mark chapter 10, picking up at verse 13. People were bringing their little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them and blessed them. So obviously as someone who works with kids and youth at this church, I'm a fan of this passage. And there's points uh, in the book of Mark before this, there'll be one next week again, where Jesus um, talks about greatness and what it takes for us to be considered great. I don't think that children are only being used as object lessons in this passage. I think this is truly a passage about children and about their spiritual potential and about their specialness to Jesus. Over and above what the adults in the world thought about them, he's too busy for you, stay away, he doesn't have time for you. I think Jesus is really affirming the spiritual capacity and specialness of Jesus right here. Jesus took the spiritual needs of children seriously, and we should take them seriously, spiritually, spiritually, seriously as well. Because kids are real people who live real spiritual lives. And I hate it when kids are automatically regarded as lesser on the spiritual scale than grown-ups. There's no biblical warrant for that. They may have a harder time expressing what it is that they believe because they don't have the language for that yet, but sometimes you and I have trouble expressing exactly what we believe. They may not fully understand invisible concepts like the kingdom of heaven or sin or eternal life, but sometimes you and I don't fully understand those things either. And so we are all on this journey towards Jesus, and and taking them seriously means that we affirm their spiritual potential by not sugarcoating things, but we tell them the truth. And we keep barriers down. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. The disciples are running interference for him. He's too busy for you, go away. And we, we keep the barriers down because Jesus said these kids matter just as much as you do and have as much spiritual openness and receptivity as you do. In fact, maybe even more. Maybe you 
need to become a little more like them. In first century Jewish culture, there wasn't much value placed on children. Little babies were cute, adults were useful, and the in-between time was just like, let's get them through till they can be useful. And Jesus counters that here. He says, no, 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 no. These are real people who live real spiritual lives, and we need to let the little children come to me. At the same time as we tell them the truth, we got to pay attention to the influences that are forming them and shaping them that might also be barriers to them clearly seeing who Jesus is. That's why our home environments are important. That's why the community that we raise kids in is important, not just here in Carlsbad, but also out around the world. That's why we partner with a missions organization called Kids Around the World, and we love the work that they do because they don't just do one thing, they do a few things, and they do it really strategically. And so coming up in about a month, we're going to have a weekend here at the church, and it's the Kids Around the World Kids Story Conference plus one meal packing event. And there's something in this weekend for you. Now, I know some people sometimes say, oh, kids aren't my thing. I'm not really into kids, or my kids are grown and gone, and I'm over it. But, but, but <laughs> raise your hand if you're a part of this church. Raise your hand if you're part of this church. Come on, you're here. You're sitting here. So raise your hand if you're part of this church. Okay. <laughs> then you have a role to play. You know why? Because churches are cultural institutions. And so there's things that we might do even unwittingly to create a culture that is a barrier, keeping kids from coming to Jesus. We might speak a language that they don't understand. We might be using outdated methods. We might talk at them and throw the gospel at them, but not really come around them, build a relationship with them. And let me tell you, as someone who's worked with kids and youth for for a long time, it's a long-term investment. It's a long-term prospect. You don't plant that seed and it comes up the next day. Not usually right? It takes a long time of investment. And so that's why we love the work that Kids Around the World is doing, because together with them, we can put our heads together and say, okay, culturally, what do we need to do here? And what do we need to do over in Ecuador? And what do we need to do around the world to continue to lower those barriers so that kids who are eager to come to Jesus can come to Jesus? That's why we continue to do kids games here at this church. Kids games we have the longest-running kids' games in the summer than any church in North America. 20 years and still going strong. Why do we do that? Yeah. Why do we do that? I'll tell you why. Because, because for, for some of my kids on Sunday morning, they can invite their friends every single week to come to a Sunday service, and they're not going to do it. They're not coming. But they'll come to a day camp in the summertime, when their parents are looking to go, be busy, <laughs> get out there, right? So we continue running those things. We're doing a big event for 4th, 5th, and 6th grade. It's called Super Saturday on Saturday, March 11th. It's a full day long thing. It is meant to be an outreach. Lots of fun, lots of fun, lots of fun. But we all know the day is not just about piling fun on them. The day is about them learning a different story for themselves, a story that includes the existence of hidden spiritual things and a God who loves them and wants to direct their path. See, so we just keep working at this and lowering those barriers so that kids can come to Jesus and we don't stand in their way. This morning, along with the community groups tables, there is a table and a booth set up by kids around the world. 
And so if you want to stop by, there's about four parts to the weekend, and not every part is for everybody, but there is a part for you. You want to find out more about the food packing or the conference or whatever, stop by and talk to someone there and get their literature and, and jump in and be part of, of letting the little children and the big children uh, come to Jesus because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as those. Now, there's a boy in this passage who was raised religious, and he was allowed to come to the Torah and be a good observant Jew, and we're going to see right now what happened to him once he grew up. That's the third passage. I'm picking up at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God, alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, the rich young man, or other gospels call him the rich young ruler. This is another passage that we have to grapple with because the too simple interpretation would be, okay, to be saved, I have to sell everything and take a vow of poverty like a monk or a nun, and that's the only people who can go to heaven. But obviously, that's not what Jesus is saying. So we dig a little bit deeper. And, and what we see here is the rich young man's sin was not a sin of commission, but of omission. A sin of commission is things that you do that are wrong. A sin of omission is the thing that you should have done or might do, but you're not willing to do it. You ever killed anybody? No. Ever stolen? No. Ever lied? No. Can you sell everything you own, these possessions that you have such pride in, give it away, and then come and follow me? Oh, no. And he goes away sad. 
He goes away sad because he was too committed to his material possessions. And interpretations vary on what the eye of the needle means. Like, is Jesus saying it's totally impossible or um, it's possible, but it's really, really hard? But either way, this young man knew that he could not surrender those things and come to Jesus with open hands, which is what Jesus requires. Instead, he was full of what's called self-righteousness. He probably came to Jesus wanting a pat on the head. Saying, Jesus, Jesus, whoa, look at you. You've done so well for yourself, and you're such a good person. You're in, dude. Nothing more required. Good job. Now come and follow me. And Jesus wasn't going to give that to him. Jesus isn't saying possessions are wrong or money is wrong. He's just saying he needs to be the number one priority. He needs to be in it, and he needs to be first. And if this young man's not willing to put that stuff second so Jesus can be first, he's going to have a hard time following Jesus because the temptation to worship not God but the stuff is always going to be there. And so the man filled himself with self-righteousness. I'm, I'm probably good. I've probably done enough. Let me go to Jesus and get some validation from that so I can just living, keep living my life according to the priorities of me. And Jesus won't give him an easy out, will he? Self-righteousness. I'm, I'm probably good. I've probably done enough. How many of us, uh, if your parents, how many of us raise your kids to be good? I mean, oh yeah, I do that, right? And we correct their behavior. We want them to be good. And especially in front of other people, right? we correct their behavior. Everybody does that. But there's a difference between holiness and respectability. A big difference. Holiness is, is like, like I gave a message three weeks ago about righteousness and how righteousness is God's grade A gold standard, which in our human flesh, because we are weak, we cannot reach on our own. And so therefore to live a righteous life is not to live of our own strength, but we are crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but he lives in us. The righteous life is the life of Jesus lived in and through us. And that's holiness, borrowed holiness, his holiness in place of our unrighteousness. And so somehow as we, of course, teach our kids right from wrong and we hold them to standards of conduct, we, we have to get this concept across that try as hard as they might to be good. They still can't be the goodness that God requires. There's a holiness, there's a righteous standard to which they will always fall short. That's really hard for little kids to grasp because presumably as parents, we wouldn't tell them to be good or we wouldn't give them a standard of conduct if we didn't believe they could live up to it, right? That would just be playing games with them. But, but somehow as they age, we've got to introduce them to the concept of God's holiness, which is a standard up here that we will always fall short of, yet we should nonetheless always desire. And that leads to the disciples' question. Well, Jesus, what, if this is what's required, then, then who can be saved? It's really a question about justification. Jesus, like what, then the law is just worthless? Like what are you saying here? And the key, the clue is in when the young man approaches Jesus and says, good teacher, and Jesus says, oh, don't call me good. No one is good except for God the Father. 
So self-righteousness will never be good enough. It can be pretty good. You can be a pretty good person. I've known some pretty good people, but it's never quite good enough, right? You could, you could always give a little more. You could always be there for a friend a little more than you were. You could always go out of your way a little more than you do. Self-righteousness will never quite be good enough. And the rich young man knew this in the back of his mind, but he was just so committed to his own goodness that he could not set that aside along with his material things and simply follow Jesus. What might you be overly committed to that is keeping you from coming to Jesus with empty hands because, because you're bringing your righteousness to him. Jesus, look how good I am. Look, look at all that I've done. And he's not impressed. Not that those things aren't impressive in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of Jesus, he's like, hey, I just want, I just want you. I don't want your degree. I don't want your title before or after your name. I don't want your tax returns. I just want you. And if we can't surrender those things, that's our personal barrier to coming to God that we've, we've uh, constructed. It should look like this. Show this picture of my daughter here. Yeah. So uh, we live in a neighborhood that's got some hills, and no matter what route we take to walk, we always end up going uphill in order to get back to the house. And, uh, and so sometimes I'm just tired, but she gets tired and she'll say, Daddy, carry me, carry me, carry me, carry me. And I'll say, I'm too tired, I can't carry you. And then she does this thing. She's done this for like a year and a half. She'll take her fingers, and I caught her doing this the other day, and she'll, she'll go, power, 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 power. Giving me the power that I lack, and then she's, you know, now I have to pick her up and carry her because she's giving me the power. Hey, that's the Christian life, right? And if, if we're full of self-righteousness, we don't have eyes to see when we're hitting a wall. But we got to be honest with ourselves about where is that wall? When are we running up against the thing that we ought to do, but we either don't want to do it, or in our flesh, we, we break down and we don't do it. Romans chapter 7. Okay? And so we got to be honest with ourselves. This is where a community group or small group really comes in handy because sometimes we don't see it, but other people will see it. And they'll go, you're, you're falling short there. And when we come up against the wall, then that's when we admit to Jesus with open hands, Jesus, I, I'm not a perfect husband. I am not a perfect parent. I handled that really badly. Okay. And then Jesus says to us, power, power, power. <laughs> power, power, power. Right? And we live in partnership with him. But if I come to him and go, Jesus, look what a great husband I am. Wasn't that super thoughtful of me? Oh, Jesus, wasn't that awesome of me to spend 25 minutes of quality time with my kids today? Right? Then I'm not asking for the thing that I need which is his righteousness in me, the power, power, power that only comes from Jesus. So we live in daily dependence on him, not beating ourselves up and despising ourselves, but honest about where we fall short and where we need his power. And that's why there's no place for boasting. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we have to be humble and remain humble 
all the time. We'll invite the worship team out here. Uh, and as we do, uh, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, um, I, was up, I had a bone to pick with a teacher. I'm like 11 years old. And I remember this. I like really tried to set this teacher straight and tell her what to do. And this woman's in her 60s. You know, I don't know why she even listened to me, but she did. She was very patient. And now when I think of that, if I, I think like if a kid came and chewed me out that way, I probably wouldn't laugh at them there, but I would not be threatened by that at all. And that's God with us. You know, we can be totally honest with him about our failings and also what we perceive to be his failings. God, you shouldn't have let that happen. God, I should be more successful in my life. God, that relationship should work out for me and you should make that happen or you should have made that happen. You can rage. You have permission. You can be totally honest with God and God is not threatened by you at all. In fact, he wants the honest you. If that's where you're at, then that's where you're at. You just be honest with him. And then in the end, he's still going to be God. And he's still going to be there doing his thing. That's why we step back and live our lives in daily humbleness. Right? Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. We are guests as we live on this earth in someone else's nice house, his house. And all things created by him and through him and for him. So when I talked about righteousness three weeks ago on New Year's Day, it was about like God coming and living in our realm. But the takeaway from the instruction in Mark 10 is how we live in his realm. Because it turns out you're not the only you. There's other yous in this world. And God wants those relationships to be something that honors him. You matter. Oh my goodness, you matter. You matter so much. Or God wouldn't have put his image inside of you. But that person next to you matters equally. And the person across the sanctuary this morning matters equally. And we all have obligations as we're in God's nice house. Like, like when you were little, did your mom ever take you over to somebody who's had a much nicer house than yours? Did that ever happen? And then we would get the talking to before we began in. You'd be very, very careful because <laughs> everything that they have is nice. That's what I think the Bible is referring to when it says that we live our lives in reverent fear. Reverent fear. Not fear like terrified of God, but like we're just careful. We're careful because your life is not your own. It's a gift. And that person sitting next to you is a gift. And that person who you encounter every day that drives you nuts, they're a gift given from God, and we got to treat them and our relationships with them very carefully. And we come to him with open hands. So God, Lord Jesus, um, these are challenging teachings, and they call for us to look inside of ourselves at maybe places that we haven't visited or examined in a while. But deep inside our hearts, we've got attitudes towards people um, that are maybe divisive. Um, we've got broken relationships in our past, in our part of our history, and, and you're desiring some level of reconciliation there. Just speak to us, God, about where you see us as you 
sit in heaven and watch all of us live on earth and we're living life in your very nice house with the very nice things that you've created. How do you see us fitting and interacting there? Maybe there's a treatment of another individual that we need to repent of to you or repent of directly to them and seek reconciliation because we know that all broken relationships break your heart. Maybe we've looked down on children as not worthy of the gospel or not worthy of you or not worthy of the best that you have for them. And we want to repent of that and and have our eyes opened to the purity of children's faith and how we might emulate that. And maybe we've been too caught up in our material possessions and our self-righteousness and we've got blinders on to the things that we are omitting. And we can't let go. Help us, God, to open our hands and just let go so that you can take the throne position. You can take the number one priority position. And all those other things, they'll, they'll fall into place. But as you said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be given to us. It takes faith to believe that. Some days I don't believe that. Some days I want to seek first the kingdom of me. And then I beg you to come along and and trail along. But that's not the Christian life. We want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And when we find ourselves unrighteous and unworthy, we call out to you for the power, power, power that only you can give. Now we worship you, Lord. And we open our hearts to the way that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The way of the cross is a way of sacrifice and self-denial. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Um, We've got those community groups tables set up out there. And if you're not part of a group at this church, uh, we hope that you'll go out and take a look and consider it because... Belonging to a community group is a form of sacrifice. You have to sacrifice time. You have to sacrifice uh, listening to someone else talk about their life and maybe uh, praying for them or the energy that it takes to physically help them and assist them. But the more sacrifice we engage in, uh, the closer we come to understanding what Jesus said, that many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. So we hope that you'll take advantage of that and see where you might plug in in a smaller community-sized group at this church. Also hope that you'll take a look at the Kids Around the World table as that conference weekend approaches about a month from now. And um, we'd love to pray for you as well. So if you've got a a personal need or um, you just need support this morning, um, I'll be up front. Other members of our staff and our prayer team will be up front. Please never hesitate to come and get prayer. God bless you all. We hope you have a great week, and we hope to see you right back here again next weekend.